0: First of all, everybody, welcome to the show. I'm really happy today that I have an amazing physician on Ian Cole, and you're now in Idaho?
1: Correct. Yes, I've been here for 18 years. I'm an independent pathologist, run the largest independent lab in the state of Idaho, anatomic clinical pathologist, board certified, trained at the Mayo Clinic and subspecialty training in skin pathology as well. I had a year of PhD research in immunology as well. One of my board certifications covers virology, so yeah, kind of do a lot. See lots of patients through the lab through the microscope. Here, I'll see about thirty thousand patients a year through the lab. We'll see about another 50,000 patients a year. So we're busy doing a lot of everything concerning the human body. And you just got named to the
0: medical board, right? I did. So I got uh, really good news for a lot of people who. Well, it's, it's I medical board across the country.
1: It's the first hurdle. The other counties have to vote now. It's a four-county region that represents about a million people. You know, I'm getting attacked in the newspapers, and they're, of course, posting false things. So I've got to send some letters to them today for retractions and ask them to correct the record. We'll see if that happens. So if you're getting attacked, if you're getting flack, you know you're over the target. Thank you. I appreciate it, and I'm just hoping I can do my small part to help the health and wellness of my community.
0: Tell me your saga. Now, how did you get involved in as your mainstream doctor, and what happened? Where did you go wrong?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Where did I go wrong? <laughs> Uh, You know, I guess I I went wrong when I saw patterns. I got invited to speak back in March. The lieutenant governor, she puts on just a weekly educational session. And I thought I was giving a lunchtime chit chat to about 100 people. Just a little educational chit chat. Here's an update on COVID. Here's things we need to think about. Here's what's being missed. Here's what's being done right. So I I put together just a quick PowerPoint presentation and it got posted. I didn't realize anyone was going to film it. My intention was to educate 100 people at lunchtime, and next thing I knew, tens and tens of millions of people around the world had seen it, and all of a sudden, I'm in the zeitgeist, and a lot of people responded saying, thank you for speaking the truth. What we're seeing in this past year hasn't made any sense to us. What I spoke resonated. Basic immune health, basic things that we're not doing risky shots with no long-term track history, missing out on early treatments that do save lives. And I know you've had plenty of my colleagues on that have talked about that. And that's so, so important because never in the history of medicine have we ever neglected a patient and turned them away and not treated them. So I, I spoke very simple things that resonated with the hearts and minds of humanity. And because of that, I constantly research. It's it's what I do as a pathologist. My job is patterns, patterns, patterns. And it's taking all the data points and putting those patterns together. And as as we see what's societally going wrong, we see what's going wrong with lack of treatment, when we see that we're ignoring some of the damage that certain things are doing to society physically, and not acknowledging those, it's time to speak the truth. And so at that point, I thought, you know, I have no other option but to speak out for no personal gain. I mean, for me, it's I I took an oath to save lives. And that's my motivation. A virus isn't politically red or blue or purple, even this is all about humanity. And are we doing the proper thing by our fellow citizens and human beings? Yes or no. And if we're not, I kind of think of some of my colleagues you've had on, we're kind of this ragtag fugitive fleet, if you go back to the Battlestar Galactica days, you know, trying to save, save the universe in our small way.
0: Uh, there was a reporter the other day who said are you doing this for personal profit? I said, no, this is the opposite of personal profit. This is not a good career choice. Everybody <laughs> has that the outside. Like you're gonna get hammered. You're gonna lose income and that you're gonna lose friends and that it's a controversial position and nobody in their right mind would do this unless there was um, no important motivation. Let's talk about what happens. what you see when COVID patients come to you, what do you do? As opposed to, you know, the official paradigm at this point is the standard of care is that you wait till they go to, the, till you're so sick, you send them home, tell them, call us back when you can't breathe. Two weeks later, they're living there in anxiety and then you bring them into a hospital and give them a ventilator and remdesivir. What do you do differently?
1: The moment somebody's positive, I believe in the concept of test and treat, and we've seen this all around the world. Other countries have been so much more progressive than we have. Unfortunately, here we have governmental protocols from agencies that are regulatory captured, so We have big systems, to your point, that all you get is, oh, we have nothing for you, go home. Even like remdesivir, by the time the patient comes to the hospital with remdesivir, they're beyond the viral replication stage. So that drug is even pointless at that point. We saw in the JAMA study from the VA just a few weeks ago that it actually prolongs hospitalization. Animal studies with remdesivir show that a quarter of mammals went into kidney failure with that drug. It's not a safe drug. What I do is when they come to me and... If they can't get to me, the the challenge is being one person and having hundreds of people per day because they're desperate, because no one wants to treat and doctors are stuck in systems. Even doctors that do want to treat can't because their systems will fire them. So for me, there's it's a multi-drug approach. It's not just one drug. With Delta, you have to treat even earlier because the virus is kind of a wildfire right now. It tends to be less deadly according to world data, but you, you have to get patients on treatment. I like ivermectin. There's about 20 mechanisms of action. The Journal of Antibiotics published through Nature had the 20 mechanisms of action. Phenomenal drug. And I my, my colleagues in the news media, et cetera, that criticize me, they say, oh, it's an antiparasitic drug. And I say, look, it's a molecule. It's not obligated to read a textbook to be told what it can or can't do. It's a molecule that can do whatever it wants to do. And for over a decade, we've known that it has antiviral properties. So research has shown for a long time that this is a very good antiviral because it has a lot of mechanisms to block viruses from replicating and binding and entering our cells. So that's one drug I like. Certainly hydroxychloroquine early has a lot of effects as well. Another one that came out of the UK, a simple cholesterol drug called phenofibrate, which bends the shape of the spike in our receptor, So they can't, the virus can interact at the appropriate stage using the proper steroids. The hospitals are using anemic steroids that don't turn off cytokine genes. Fluvoxamine, if patients have neural symptoms, you know, as Dr. McCullough says, I've followed some of his protocols. I've followed some of Dr. Corey's protocols, but here's the beautiful thing. I am my brother's keeper. Back in December of last year, when I saw some of the ivermectin data, my brother was my first patient and he lives in a Another state, called me on his way to the ER said, no, you're going to the pharmacy. And I called in some ivermectin. He's an obese type one diabetic, high, high risk. You know, he had nine out of 10 chest pain, pleuritic pain. He calls me six hours later and he said, guess what? My pain's down to two out of 10. I said, that's the interferon effect of ivermectin. The next morning, he calls me, his oxygen had gone from 86 up to 98. And I said, wow. So that was my entree into it was saving my brother's life. And then I got to treat my 78-year-old mom, my 83-year-old dad. And of the countless hundreds and hundreds of patients I've treated, zero have gone to the hospital, zero have gone to the ER and test, treat early, and the maybe of those took maybe a a week longer to heal because they started in the course later. So my message is there's plenty of online telehealth services. If you can't find a doctor in your region, you go to myfreedoctor.com, speakwithanmd.com, frontlinemds.com, and any of these groups and try to get early treatment keeps you out of the ER, keeps you out of the hospital. And then the one other thing, and you've probably heard this, that's getting ignored left and right. If the pharma companies want to be involved with an effective drug, well, then the monoclonal antibodies, they've been paid for. They're parked in infusion centers and emergency rooms around the country, but there are crickets about this drug that decreases death and hospitalization by 50%. So, you know, kudos to Ron DeSantis for finally pushing that forward in his state. And he's had really great success by getting that message out. So there are early treatments that save lives. There's no reason in a profession where we have taken an oath, not treating early is doing harm. It's a sin of omission by not treating.
0: What do you I a lot of art. Audience is asked me all the time, what are doctors doing for long haul COVID, and also for vaccine injury for people who got the vaccine and are having these neurological symptoms, other symptoms from the vaccine that last for months.
1: Yeah. And that's an excellent question. There are some of these medications that the the mechanism in these long haul patients, kudos to Dr. Bruce Patterson. And then he has a a website, covidlonghaulers.com, and they're doing research. But mechanistically, there's a certain type of white blood cell, a non-classical monocyte that is still holding fragments of virus and or spike inside of it. It's kind of the same mechanism in the long hauler and or the post-COVID patient. Fascinatingly, ivermectin is fantastic for that. Those who have neurologic injury post a vaccine or post long haul, fluvoxamine has had great effect in a good percentage of those patients. Some patients don't tolerate it. It's a low dose for a short period of time. I've treated a handful of these individuals, maybe 16, but I would say about 75% of them. I got this beautiful letter from a gal in New York saying, she could barely move. She couldn't function. She couldn't go back to work. After three weeks on treatment, she was ecstatic saying, I'm 80, 90% better. I'm functional again. It's turning off a certain type of white blood cell, not with just those. And I would encourage people to look at flccc.net and look at their I Recover protocols. There's algorithms. But if you understand, and that's what we do in basic science, and that's what we do in laboratory medicine, we look at the mechanisms of action of these long haulers or the post vaccine injured. And if you understand which cells are involved, then you know how to approach the treatment protocols. You know, vitamin D in good dose will help repolarize and inactivate those non-classical monocytes. One of the statins, atorvastatin is effective melatonin, interestingly, because it affects your hormones, all sorts of things. And then there's even another line of cells, kind of your itchy inflammatory cells, your mast cells. Some of these patients are hyperactivated in that line. So you can use some antihistamines, famotidine, which is pepsid or claritin allegra, the non-D type. Again, there are so many things and it's surprising and shocking to me that so many of my colleagues are like, oh, you have long haul, you know, good luck. I'm like, no, no, we're here for humanity. Let's step in, be hardcore scientists, be compassionate, be empathetic, dive in and treat. And the beauty of a lot of this is the majority of these drugs, we we get the criticism of, well, that's not FDA approved for this. And I say, well, these are FDA approved drugs. Most doctors write 30 to 40% of their prescriptions for off-label use every day in their practice. At worst, you're giving a sugar pill. At best, you're saving a life these are the safest drugs. Like Ivermectin is on the WHO's list of most essential safest medicines. And to have colleagues say, oh, that's a horse pill. I'm like, nonsense, nonsense. Read the literature, see what it does. So you can help these patients. We've been helping these patients and it's a beautiful thing when you see someone who's suffering say, my symptoms are gone. And it's almost miraculous, but it's, it's not miraculous. It's actually science. And that's the beauty of it. One just has to be thoughtful enough, empathetic enough, brave enough to do the right thing.
0: Yeah, I saw a Merck issued a warning about ivermectin, which was really bizarre because Merck is saying, well, it may not be safe, of course it now. It Merck is a manufacturer, a traditional manufacturer. It now has a competitive drug, and the ivermectin you, you, know, you can get for 30 cents a dose. It has a drug that is only selling for $3,000 a dose. And now it's saying, well, we have safety concerns. Merck has been giving 900 million doses a year to children in Africa for a decade and never had any safety concerns. And now suddenly when they have a competitive drug, they have safety concerns. Have you looked at what's happening in other countries who are actually doing applying these kind of enlightened protocols?
1: Oh, absolutely. And and Merck, they got a $340 million grant from the NIH for their new drug. Of course they have no interest in their old generic drug that's cheap. And I have a colleague that knows the Vice President of Merck, and she called him out and she talked to him and said, look, I know what you're up to. And and, and it is, you know, follow the money, you know that, follow the money. So they have a financial interest in another drug that, again, ivermectin, safest drug, you could be giving four, almost four billion doses. Given maybe twelve ad- adverse outcomes in the last, you know, forty, almost forty years. Meanwhile, remdesivir in one year has killed over six hundred patients in the hospital. Ivermectin safer than aspirin, safer than Tylenol, you know, with aspirin three thousand deaths a year. But if you look at those other countries, take for example Mexico, Mexico City called the province of Chiapas and said, "What the heck are you guys doing?" And they said, "Well, we're testing and treating, and test treat, test treat." If someone tested positive, ivermectin, ivermectin for the family, and their hospitals went from, you know, 80, 90, 95% capacity down to, or of full capacity down to like 20%. So Mexico City said, well, let's do the same thing. And then when Delta, the same one we're experiencing here, went through India, some of the forward-thinking provinces said they had been using it in their first wave, then they stopped, they started their vaccination program, then they spiked. And they said, okay, this isn't working. We need to go back to early treatment. So the, say Delhi, for example, they did a mass distribution. And in two weeks, their case rates dropped 97, 98%. Same thing in the province of Goa. In two weeks, prior to all the other provinces dropping, wherever they did these mass distribution of early treatment, again, 97% decrease in two weeks. Same thing in the north, in the highly populated Uttar Pradesh. And so if you look at these population studies, it's undeniable on mass scale how effective this test and treat and prevent program is. And as a prevention, you look at the work of Dr. Carvalho in Argentina, 800 healthcare workers put them on it during their first wave once a week for two months. And of those 800 healthcare workers, zero got COVID. And their placebo control group of 400, 57, 58% of people got COVID. So If used early, if used appropriately, these drugs are incredibly safe and massively effective, but it's undeniable. There's no money in it, but there's life-saving in it, and that's the beauty of it. What about Japan? Uh, Japan is interesting. The head of their medical association called for it. He called for mass distribution of ivermectin. Fascinatingly, ivermectin comes from the soil of a bacteria in Japan, one small spot in the earth where this beautiful life-saving medication was discovered. So there's a push for it there. Obviously, they have a a big increase in their infection rates. I know there's a push for it. I don't know the current update right now, Here's the problem in medicine. There's no one-size-fits-all solution, and we had this construct and beating drum of fear suffering vaccine, fear suffering vaccine, that's all you have. For different age groups, different populations, you need to look at different interventions, different modalities. And so, again, some of these other countries have been the leaders. Why it's been suppressed in our media, you and I could conjecture, there's no money in it, there's only life-saving in it. I don't know, I can't ascribe to motive, I never ascribe to malice, that which can be explained by ignorance. And I think, you know, a lot of our media and a lot of our sources are willfully ignorant, not wanting to know that there's something so simple and so effective. So answer this question for me. I've asked this question to Peter Corey, I've asked it to Peter
0: McCulloch, I've asked it of Dr. Harvey Rich, and they've all told and given me roughly the same answer. If we had done early treatment in this country, from the time when we knew that these drugs were available, how many lives could we have saved?
1: I would say in the United States, 350, 400,000, maybe more. There were certainly people that were elderly, high risk, highly comorbid, that no matter what virus came along this last season, like we see in any respiratory virus, flu, whatever season, you're still going to see a set percentage of your population susceptible and pass away. But had we intervened early with these highly effective, highly safe medications, we would have had hundreds of thousands of fewer deaths from this.
0: We're seeing it in California where doctors even write exemptions for any vaccine are now being de-licensed by the medical boards. And to the extent where there is no doctor in California who will write medical exemptions no matter how dire the need is,
1: how do you explain that? This is malice. This is this is pure malice. I mean, in a nation of free speech, the doctor-patient relationship is sacred. The doctor, he or she knows their patient. And this is a free speech issue. This is absolutely a free speech issue to muzzle and suppress doctors for doing what they know is right for their patient should be a sacred relationship. And to, again, this goes back to this concept of one size fits all. It's not a one size fits all solution. And doctors know their patients. They know who are at risk. And to deny a doctor the opportunity to exempt and save a patient from harm, that's our job. And I see signals of things that are concerning for many patients. And so to suppress speech and suppress science and to say there's only one way to think, it's incomprehensible because we know from a science point of view what damage is being done to certain people. We know who are at risk for the shots. Not everybody's at risk, but a lot of people are. That's our sacred relationship with the patient that should not be infringed. I've been saying lately if everybody's thinking alike, then somebody isn't thinking, quoting General George Pat. Thank you very much, Dr. Ryan Cole. I tell you, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts. I love the one with your friend in Colombia. I lived in South America for a couple of years and I, I love the cultures down there. And I, I, I love the eclectic mix of guests that you have on. I love your broad thinking. So many people are just... So, you're a polymath, I can tell, and you have an interest in so many aspects of life. So, I highly respect that. And I just, I enjoy people who are thinkers who just go beyond just, you know, box what box is how I approach life. There's no box to live in, there's so many branches of life to explore. And it's just, Really neat how you have these people from all walks of life, and I, I admire that. I, I, I thank you very that. much. I'm so very
0: privileged. We might cut that as an ad for the show. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> thank you
1: very much. Brian. All right, it's an honor. Anytime, right.
0: Dr. Brian Cole, thank you so much for joining today, and thank you for your courage and for everything that you do.